Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. On October 13th, I'll be moderating a debate between congressional candidates in the 4th District. Those candidates are Jim Himes and Jamie Stevenson. It's my job in the debate to ask challenging questions, to help voters know where the candidates stand on the issues, and if necessary, keep things civil. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. A formal debate stage with agreed-upon format and rules is nothing like the conversations that we have with our family around the dinner table. A 2020 survey from the Pew Center found that in this time of extreme political division, almost 80% of Americans have just a few or no friends with opposing political views. Today's show is all about how we communicate across the political divide. Later in the show, I'll talk to Monica Guzman. She's author of a new book, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. She's still struggling with how to talk to her conservative parents about January 6th, but she knows that she needs to. First, we wanted to better understand a controversy right here in Connecticut in the town of Southington. It all stems from a vocabulary sheet that was handed out by a high school English teacher. It included words like transgender, cisgender, and white privilege. That memo angered some parents and residents, like Southington's Mary Barbara Gallo. We should be taught math and English and social studies unless we are in a a life Um, what is it, life events program that, you know, children can enroll into, but in a regular room, um, teaching English, this teacher had no right to come and bring in her material. That was audio gathered at a rally in September by Connecticut Public's education reporter, Catherine Shen. We spoke with Catherine about why that vocabulary sheet became national news. There's this 10th grade English teacher at Southington High School that that provided this vocabulary vocabulary list that came from the University of Arizona. And um, and what she was trying to do was she's an English class. So uh, there's a lot of language evolving as she's teaching these courses. And and um, basically from the review, it sounds like she was trying to use this vocabulary list as a way to build common ground and build a framework for the students to learn the definitions of these vocabularies because um, from her experience, it sounds like she's heard students misusing the terms. So as an English teacher, it was her way of educating the students, but cause a backlash. Um, It sounds like certain students in the classroom were uncomfortable with the materials. They took it to their parents and um, somebody took it to social media. And that's sort of where the story exploded. What's been the response from the district and the superintendent in this case? So when when the school board first found out about the materials, they immediately launched an investigation and uh, the superintendent made it very clear that because this is a personnel issue, this is not something that they're going to discuss in, in the media and on social media, which is very fair. And so 
after they reviewed the materials and did a did a comprehensive review of the teacher, um, it sounds like you know what I just said earlier. This is this is something really common for the teacher. You know, she teaches very complex issues. Um, but from the investigation, uh, the superintendent Stephen Manasi um, made it very clear that there was no intent from the teacher to sort of influence the students or to slant their perceptions. It's really her way of, of educating the students of what these uh, vocabulary words mean as a part of the class. And also um, she was trying to create a space for discussion as you would in an English classroom and a safe space for, for the students to have these discussions. And so um, that, that's sort of the basic idea of what happened and and uh, the superintendent also mentioned that the teacher realizes that the list may not be a neutral space um, it may be controversial and so there's recognition of that i said at the beginning that this has gotten national attention and part of that is this ongoing concern that some parents have about critical race theory and what's being taught to students and educators being concerned that their attempts to include students, be inclusive and expose their understanding of these complex topics is being a part of this other sort of story. How has this particular incident been drawn into that national debate about things like critical race theory? So I, I think, um, especially the superintendent's probably shaking his head right now. Um, he made it very, very clear uh, when he made the report that the handout given to the students had nothing to do with critical race theory. And um, I think as, as a part of our story, we had defined that from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund that it defines critical race theory as an academic framework that examines the impact of systemic racism on American society. And that basically translates to it's something that's studied in a higher institution like colleges or universities, um, grad school research. So so as a part of the review, um, the superintendent made it very clear that this is not something that's being taught in schools because it's not appropriate, especially with the age and grade level. And the handout has nothing to do with critical race theory or CRT. And he did mention that he felt like this was brought out because it's the latest buzzword, right? A lot of people are, are putting several topics under this one umbrella. And so that, that was his understanding of what was happening. And, and in this case specifically, there is a group of Connecticut families and residents called Families for Freedom that basically labeled the situation as CRT related. And they took it upon themselves to go on these rallies, and which is what happened at Southington High School. So that's sort of part of the narrative of what's been happening. And, and Southington happened to just have this land uh, landed on their laps, basically. You've mentioned a review of the superintendent saying, we're reviewing this teacher, reviewing the content. You've mentioned some of the parent and community-led rallies. What's the current status of this situation and the investigation? So it sounds like the investigation was concluded and the superintendent made a couple of recommendations. And uh, the first one um, relates to giving more professional development to teachers and staff who may be teaching these more complex and more controversial issues, which I think we will be seeing, um, you know, as the years go along, and um, to make sure that the curriculum is aligned with their policies. And the second recommendation um, he made was to have the high school English department and social studies department collaborate more since they have a lot of topics that intersect. 
And a third recommendation he made was to make sure that whenever there's a question, if something is may or may not be appropriate to bring it out and have a discussion with colleagues or with departments, just to make sure that everything is aligned was the basic idea. And I, th I think his sort of unofficial fourth is to say that the district and himself supports this teacher and supports all district teachers and just sort of emphasizes that, look, this is this is something that should have been done internally, but because it was on social media, it's caused a lot of stress for the school, for the staff, for teachers and students. So they would very much like to avoid something like this happening again. This question of whether and how to talk about issues of race and gender has also come up in the race for governor here in Connecticut. The Republican challenger Bob Stefanowski has said, quote, we need to keep kitchen table issues to the kitchen table. From your reporting, Catherine, and your vantage point, is this an issue that is resonating with voters here in Connecticut? So I think that's a really interesting question because, and it's a terrible answer, right? But it really depends on who you who you talk to. And um, I've spoken to a lot of uh, political scientists over the last couple months in you know, election stories and education stories. And there seems to be a collective agreement that yes, there, this is a concern for pockets of communities in Connecticut. Uh, but whether or not uh, Connecticut voters in general will bite onto this, we will find out in November. Um, and one of, one of the analysts mentioned that this is really coming out because it's sort of the latest sign of like divisive cultural battles over race, like you mentioned, religion, gender and sexuality, and school boards and schools sort of became battlegrounds because people want to fight about it. And so we'll see what, what happens in the next couple of weeks. But this is certainly a topic that will not be going away anytime soon. Even the framing of this as an issue of parent's choice is something that connects into the longstanding usage of the phrase parent's choice that actually has nothing to do with these kinds of debates about curricula and content and who gets to decide what's happening. While we have you here, I want to ask you, are there other issues surrounding education that you're seeing as top of mind for voters and perhaps for candidates? Uh, well, I think the first thing that pops into my mind is ban books, banning books in school libraries. And, and the same analyst that I spoke to um, referenced to the larger context of what's happening across the nation. And it, it includes um, parents getting involved with wanting to ban school library books. I mean, we've seen, again, when I mentioned earlier, pockets of Connecticut communities that are getting involved in that. We have politicians and, and parents who want certain books banned from school libraries. Um, and school board officials questioning what's being taught in classrooms. Um, I think we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of that. But another point that one of the analysts made, well, wanted to make, and I think has a lot of um, has a lot of oomph to it, is we're also hearing a lot of um, voices because a lot of traditionally marginalized communities are not now also starting to stand up and speak out. So you have sort of both ends of the spectrum kind of going at it. And naturally, that would be so, right? So I think we're going to see a lot of that coming up. You know, we did a show a few months ago, and we spoke to educators and school administrators who talked about the tremendous pressure that they are facing to help our students be healthy and well, in addition to educating them with these external pressures and this external oversight. So I think as the months go forward, thinking about, as you said, the different voices that are emerging and raising 
addressing issues in ways that have previously been overlooked will be key. So we'll have to have you back to discuss that as well. Catherine Shin is the education reporter for Connecticut Public. Catherine, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. When we return, author Monica Guzman about how political divisions prevent us from seeing the world as it truly is. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. In a 538 Ipsos survey from September, Americans rated political polarization as their second highest concern after inflation. There are people in the U.S. who are trying to bridge those divides and show us how we can work together. Monica Guzman is Senior Fellow for Public Practice at Braver Angels. It's an organization that's working to unite red and blue Americans in a working alliance to depolarize America. Guzman's new book is called I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Monica, welcome to Disrupted. Mm, Thank you so much for having me. Let's get right into the title of this book, because there is so much there to unpack. What does it mean to have a fearlessly curious conversation, especially in these divided times? What it means is... (laughs) that we're having a conversation that's really driven by curiosity and we're using that mental superpower that we are all equipped with this capacity to be curious the 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 craving for knowledge the desire to fill a gap between what is known and what is not known and we're going to put that in the driver's seat now it's fearless out of necessity because one of the big villains of curiosity is fear You can't wonder about something you think is out to get you. One of the things that we hear all the time is this fear or concern that people have about, quote unquote, cancel culture or being canceled. And I think that often can be the antithesis to having curiosity or being willing to engage in the conversation. What is it about this moment or this context that you think it is dangerously divided here in the United States? The main issue, I think, is that we are so divided, we are blinded, that our divisions have led to so many misperceptions that research has categorized and shown over and over again, that we're not even seeing the world as it really is. We're we're kind of 
wandering through a lot of projections. And those projections make people who disagree with us on some issues seem a lot worse than they really are. So it's dangerous because when we are threatened, we act out. We'll do anything. We get desperate. And I think we're already seeing when we look around our country, both in reactionary policies, but also, you know, creeping toward political violence, um, that that's already happening for a lot of people. And we don't we cannot turn that up any higher. It is easy to demonize or otherize people that we don't know, people for whom there is some degree of anonymity or distance. But when you think about it in a personal setting, in terms of your neighbors, your friends, your family members, that becomes even more challenging. And you write in the book about that political division between you and your parents and how that division really pushed you in some ways to think about these issues on a deeper, more personal level. Share that experience with our listeners so they get a sense of how you're approaching it in the book. Yeah, the the relationship with my parents is a huge animating force to my even writing this book. Writing books is very hard. <laughs> writing books in a pandemic is even harder. Uh, but But part of what really brought me to this was a contrast, a contrast between the conversations that I've been able to have with my parents, I voted for Clinton and Biden. They voted twice enthusiastically for Trump and likely will again. And you can imagine, given the divisions in our country, the depth of disagreement that exists there. And yet we were able to have the kinds of conversations where we there would be a lot of heat. A lot of people are afraid of conversations getting too heated and it makes sense. But there's a difference between heat that cooks something and heat that burns something. With my parents, we're able to have heat in our conversations that cooks something. It cooks understanding. I've asked my mother, mom, what do you think? Why do you think we're even able to have this? Because sometimes we yell at each other and yet we can laugh a couple seconds later and come back to something real. And she said, you know, Monica, I think it's because we acknowledge each other's good points. And I realized she was right. She's really good at hearing me out and saying, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. That's a good point. And I can do that for her. So it was the contrast between that experience and what I what I hear from so many people where they're burning bridges and ending relationships over political disagreements that really feel like they're a heck of a lot more than just about an opinion. Let's add a layer to that because there are these political disagreements, there are policy debates, there are the divisions that happen over ideology within that political sphere. But when you add in layers of identity, it makes it even more challenging. And so some people may hear you say your parents enthusiastically voted for Trump twice and would likely do so again if they have the opportunity and say, but wait a minute, all of those comments that he made about people from Mexico or about immigrants more broadly, why on earth would anyone with that shared identity support him? So how do you break through that in the conversation with your parents or with others where identity and ideology seemingly collide? Exactly. Yeah, that's the question. And that really is the question. You know, I said at the top of this that it's about putting curiosity in the driver's seat. Why would someone with that shared identity still have this political opinion and still want to go in that direction. That was one of my driving questions. And I unearthed a lot of complexity, including, for example, my father, you know, born in Mexico, grew up in Mexico. Um, I talk in the book about how 
he would watch his own father be mocked <clears throat> by his friends for paying all his taxes on time. Mexico is a country where you can get away with things. It's more corrupt. Um, the laws don't get enforced, etc. So my dad would look north at the United States and really admired the way that it could hold itself up, right? That the rules of our society are better respected. And he kind of thought like, I think I belong there. So he worked really hard <laughs> to come here. And so he hears about in immigration, there's all these laws that are not respected. People cross the border against the law. His his value around that that in, you know that enforcement that respect for the boundaries of this country comes above his national identification with other Mexicans who cross the border. So that's one example of as a result of my kind of peering behind the scenes on that <laughs> in in not a very angry way, confused but not angry. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> I was able to learn details like that. One of the things that I think is so key in the book is that you point out this tendency we have in the U.S. to paint people in groups in these very broad strokes. And in some ways that can lead to division. In other ways that can also push us to withdraw from conversation. And the benefit of your book is that you're challenging that monolithic view of community, of identity, of even neighborhood and saying you shouldn't assume that just because someone has a shared identity or shared zip code that they believe a certain way or that they arrive at that decision for the same reasons. And I hear that in, you know, you talking about your dad's experience and seeing an ideal and wanting to adhere to that. Here is the obvious question that I know every listener will ask. Where does your relationship with your parents stand now, given these sort of ongoing divisions and contentious nature of American politics? Yeah, I mean, the relationship is still really strong. Uh, when I wrote the book, they were living very close to me in Seattle area, and they've since moved to North Carolina, which is very sad for me. But um, this summer, they were here for two, three weeks. Um, you know, we prepared the guest room and made it all nice, <laughs> put candles, hope they would enjoy it. And we, you know, as we were going around the Northwest and having fun, we also had a bunch of political conversations and they were fascinating. I will say there's one conversation I have not had to my satisfaction with them, because meaning that I haven't aired my deepest, truest concerns. And it's about January 6th. We've danced around it, but I haven't really mm, plunged. <laughs> haven't plunged in. And it's funny, right, that they were here for two and a half weeks and I somehow didn't find the time, really. You know, so I'm I'm wrestling with that in my own head because I think I'm a little afraid to have the conversation, which is exactly why I need to find a way to have it. As I listen to you talk about this relationship with your parents, the things you have been able to talk about, the things you have not been able to talk about, and the broader theme of this book, what I hear in your comment on this is that your relationship with your parents is grounded in love, is grounded in respect, and grounded in a willingness to see each other as humans, even if you are humans who disagree. But how do we take that to people who we don't know, we don't know personally, or we don't have that same understanding that at their core, they are good people, even if we disagree and still extend that level of curiosity and engagement to break down some of the division that we see? Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out, because I think the, the, the whole course of the book, it, I was almost like too shy to kind of say, oh, by the way, it also helps to love 
it, it helps, right? And so it's funny though, because sometimes deep relationships are what makes understanding harder because you have baggage. You remember horrible things they've said to you once, you know, and you have to dig your way out of those holes. Sometimes engaging with strangers about these issues can actually be easier. So I work with a nonprofit called Braver Angels, and we have workshops that bring together perfect strangers. And it's incredible the sorts of insights they can glean about the other side and politically and how deep they can get being vulnerable about their own views because there's a sort of safety in strangers. Now, most of the time when we encounter strangers, it's on the internet. And the internet is a non-place that makes us into non-people. It's far too easy to believe that what we are really doing is engaging with an opinion. People are just their opinions. We literally on Twitter have our name dash our cause. We are walking opinions. Um, we don't do ourselves any favors there. So it becomes very easy to forget. There's a whole level of complexity. Uh, so discourse on the internet starts to operate on these absurd assumptions like, oh, I can drop this meme that's really compelling to me. And then because no one responded to it, like arguing with me, clearly everyone agrees. It's like, no, <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, I want to get back to Braver Angels in a moment because I think the work that's being done really provides a useful model for what we do. But before we get there, I want to go back to something you just said about social media, which is now this ubiquitous presence in all of our lives, whether you're talking about great grandmothers or teenagers who are still kind of figuring out their place in the world. Social media that was supposed to bring mm -hmm. us together, Monica, I often feel has created social distancing and division in a way, whether it is anonymous bots who target people on Twitter or the Facebook conversations, as you said, that are just a meme and create these echo chambers. How do you think that social media, given all of the, the challenges, how could social media actually be used for good to bring people together to engage in the ways that you see as being necessary? Yeah, I mean, it's true what people say that it's ultimately how you use the tool. I will say that media, right, different media and different platforms have their own constraints, and we are too often not even aware of those constraints. Social media, like, thoroughly restricts the full human toolbox of communication, which is a beautiful thing. You don't get your body in the game. You don't get your gestures and your tone, and all those things are pretty tough. But at the same time, social media does give us this miracle of being able to access all kinds of different people and different perspectives at any time. So I think it's about how we approach it. Um, when you approach social media from a place of, and you ask yourself the question, what concerns are being expressed? What's, what is the deep down honest worries, um, hopes, fears that, that, that are animating what I'm seeing? And so when you approach different perspectives on the internet, like sometimes what I do, and I recommend this to anyone who says, okay, I can bridge a divide, but I'm really not ready to have a live conversation with someone. It's too risky. Then I say, okay, look for a headline somewhere that someone tweeted or Facebooked or Instagrammed or whatever, and click on it and ask yourself, okay, this is a different perspective. I don't agree with it. I know it's popularly held. What is the concern behind what's being said? Can I look behind, you know, the anger or whatever it is? What's the strongest argument on this other side? And you're already flexing that muscle. You're an author, but at your core, you are a storyteller. And a storyteller who has used the power of story to promote this human connection, 
to encourage people to see the humanity in others and be able to engage in that goodwill. How do you think that genre, that approach of storytelling informs this book and what you want readers to take away from the book? Yeah, I remember debating with myself and some others about how much of my personal stories to share in the book. And some people, you know, really told me, I don't I feel like you shouldn't do that. You know, lean on lean on everything else. Try to find someone else who says stuff. And but there was so much um, there were so many sort of concepts that I just felt like if I share the story, I think it'll really hit home. And so then I also had folks saying, yeah, you've, you've got to do that. So I ended up really leaning on story. The, the thing to take away is, you know, next time you're in a conversation, any conversation, notice what happens when you switch modes from arguing syllogisms or logic, rational stuff, to somebody going, you know, it's like that time a few years ago when I was in this bar, and they start telling a story. And notice what happens. If it was a tense conversation, everyone relaxes. Your brain goes from you know, thing versus thing and like that little crunchy kind of way that you think about stuff into a place of imagining. You start to visualize this person's story. Oh, they walked to a bar, they saw this person, you know, you start to picture it. And so the magic of storytelling is relatability. You don't have to explain why you connect with someone's story. It just happens. One of the biggest tips I give in the book is, is just that. Make yourselves storytellers as you're trying to explain, like the story I told earlier here about my dad, right? Watching his father's friends mock him for not paying his taxes on time. I can see it in my head. I wasn't there. (laughs) But when he told me, it made sense. Like a lot of things made so much sense. So when you ask people from their stories rather than their opinions, you're asking them to give you a tour rather than putting them on trial. And it's a completely different tone. You can you can bond a little bit in that moment, in that conversation, and it'll help you reach harder topics. That's Monica Guzman, author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Coming up, we'll return to the question of what can be said in the classroom from different perspectives. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we're talking about the power of words in political debate, from the vocabulary that's used in schools to how the words we choose can make political conversations less divisive. Monica Guzman is author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Before the break, Monica talked about her approach to storytelling and how it informs her book. But I also wondered about the challenge of writing in such a raw and honest way the stories of other people. I asked Monica if she worried about how the book would impact her parents and others whose stories she tells. Mm, I did worry about it. I did worry about it a good bit. Um, I think part, you know, just honestly, for me, it was, uh, I take very seriously the responsibilities of journalism. And I believe that good journalism is about good moderation. It's sense-making and curiosity, but largely helping people understand themselves, right? You don't put yourself into the game. Um, And I made that choice that, you know what, I think I have to say that I'm liberal (laughs) and tell stories about that political preference I have in order for any of this to connect or make sense. But I was pretty scared about that. Like, what will people think of my journalism? Will it be, 
you know, well, I've thrown away my ability to moderate. And what I found is, interestingly enough, almost the opposite, you know, where I have a lot of folks who are conservative reading this book who tell me, man, I, I can see I can see the effort, like the genuine effort you put in to having examples on both sides of the divide and how how you're trying to understand the other side. And it's actually giving me a kind of encouragement that that is possible no matter what side of the divide you're on. So that was the place where it came up for me personally. Um, but yeah, anytime you share, you share a story, you don't know what's going to come up. You don't know what new thing you've just introduced into the conversation. The other person might cringe and kind of look back. And that that's where you have to observe and say in the conversation, I see you, you, you look a bit uncomfortable. Can you tell me what's going on? You know, and hopefully there's ways to still make that something you can cook with. There will be listeners who are hearing our conversation and thinking, this sounds great in theory, right? It sounds wonderful. Be willing to be honest in your views, be curious about others and engage. And then they will remember a January 6th, or they will remember a kid who's sitting in a classroom where parents are debating about which books they get to read, or you know whether social emotional learning is this nefarious force, mm-hmm. or if it's something that's good. And there will be that fear that sometimes words can be dangerous, that words can be harmful in ways that is not like the little kid adage about sticks and stones, right? That those words stay. When we're thinking about what we're facing today in this country, and I'm, you know, as an educator, I'm particularly concerned in that context. Is there a line, Monica, where you say, you know, every idea doesn't need to be validated or Mm -hmm. every perspective doesn't need to be engaged because it could cause harm? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I guess I'll start by saying I don't think it needs to be an either or. I think that there are fighters who need to fight without doing a lot of listening to the other side that they feel is just against them. I think that that's part of a healthy democracy. People holding up the slogan and not wanting to ask a lot of questions. They're at the center of communities of belief and they can really change the world. And we've seen it and we'll keep seeing it. I think what they need is people at the edges of those communities of belief, extending a handout, you know, and reaching for people who are curious or skeptical and being able to engage in a way that doesn't just mean I'm here to persuade you and pull you in. I understand that I also need to be open to your concerns and where I might enrich my perspective and my community and the person at the top of the hill holding that sign. By learning from you, even though you are opposed to my cause, there might be some truth in your story, even though there might be no truth in your conclusions. So I deeply believe in that. Now, are there some truths that, you know, are there some perspectives that should not be validated? Sure. But I don't think there are people who are not validated. That's the difference. So there are people who hold terrible perspectives who are still valid people. And I think we can approach them that way. I'm not a, I'm not validating an idea by talking to you and getting curious about you. And but I am understanding that you are a valid person and that one way or another we have to contend with each other because we share this space and that we want I mean I think you probably want a good society you have a very different idea of what that means. But but that's the way I think that we can maybe start to let go of this idea that you know empathy is endorsement. Empathy is not endorsement. You have stepped into spaces for conversation that some people simply wouldn't go, that some people would say, yes, I may be engaging based on these good principles and good intentions, 
but maybe that space is set up to be adversarial or to be used to promote a particular view. And I'm thinking here, you know, you were on with Glenn Beck and there were some people who would say, look, I identify as a liberal. There's no way I would do that. And others who would say, oh, yes, I will go so that I can tell him exactly what I think and why Mm -hmm. he's wrong. But your approach was very different. How do you enter those spaces remain true to your core views while understanding that the context may be different from what people are willing to do. Yeah, I, I like that that highlight you gave of being core, being true to your core views. I think that there's this this idea that when we enter spaces that may be, you know, created by the other side, like the Glenn Beck podcast, that we'll, we'll necessarily have to let go of our views and our convictions. And I just don't think that's true. What I do think is true is that to be able to engage with someone on the other side, you can't come in with nothing but speaking only in frameworks and languages of your side. You do have to let go of some of that so that you can open yourself up to what is the language and the frameworks of that side. The conversation with Glenn Beck was not about the content of politics for the most part. It was about something he and I tend to actually agree with, which is that the way we talk about politics is broken. Um, It was refreshing and delightful. (laughs) And, you know, as a liberal, I was entering that space pretty, pretty scared, but I wasn't scared so much of him as I was of, you know, I'm I'm entering a space that I associate with a lot of division, a lot of polarization, that this is, this is part of what's pushing people, you know, so what can I do coming into the space? And I was thinking of Glenn, but I was also thinking of all of his listeners and how his listeners you know, some of them might feel that, man, the whole world is at war and I just need to, there's there's nothing I can learn from the other side. So I knew that I was going in representing the monster on the other side for a lot of them. You are one person, you're one amazing person, one very bright light in our conversation and in our democracy, but you are committed to creating a broader experience for people to engage. And one of the ways that you're doing that is through your work with Braver Angels. Talk to our listeners about that organization, its mission, and how you see it addressing some of the problems that you highlight in your book. Yeah, so Braver Angels' mission is form a working alliance between red and blue Americans, conservative and liberal-leaning Americans, and everyone in between, to depolarize America and strengthen our democratic republic. Sounds impossible. The reason that I got involved was I, I, I thought that an organization like this really was impossible, and then I ran into them and I said, oh my gosh, it exists, and they're doing it. So we have something like 80 local chapters in cities and towns across the country At every level of leadership, there has to be half conservative and half liberal leadership. So already right there, it's the thing that's not supposed to be possible happening. And this is grassroots. These are people, just ordinary people who have had enough one way or another. They've marched toward this mission for that reason. We offer something like 50 programs and workshops, everything from depolarizing within to families divided by politics that show all these skills um, and help you reframe. For example, Families Divided by Politics teaches that around the Thanksgiving table or in these interactions, we play these roles within our families, the sniper, the gladiator, the defender, the gang member. Um, And so how can you uh, play a different role? And how do you respond when someone is, is sniping? How do you respond when someone's just defending? 
What do you do? So yeah, each of these workshops teaches these things. So, um, and then our signature event is Braver Angels Debates, which are extraordinary. It's ways for people to passionately share exactly what their views are, but we put them in a structure where one side actually does hear the other and ask the other side really curious questions to deepen their understanding. I mean, frankly, it was Braver Angels debate about COVID back in 2020 that made me think, if I can work for these guys, I'm going to work for these guys. They're that this is it. And it's changing the world. Let's think as we come to the conclusion of our time together, the way that other people can help to change the world and commit to building bridges instead of walls in our country. What would you say is is a key takeaway or key strategy that you would encourage people to pursue to help move past some of those divisions? Um, I could name many. Uh, One of the ones coming up right now is we tend to want to ask across disagreement, why do you believe what you believe? And it's what I was saying about stories. It can come off almost accusing when there's a divide full of suspicion and fear. You don't know how it'll be received. So instead ask, how did you come to believe what you believe? Make that person into a storyteller and then tell them, you know, I see it very differently. Instead of saying you're wrong or even I disagree, you can say, I see that differently. Can I tell you what I mean? And then tell a story about something that animates your point of view before you tell your point of view. So let story lead, let curiosity lead. And as much as you can bear, don't burn your bridges. I think that's one of the most important things. A lot of people are getting to that. I've had enough. I never want to talk to this person again. I think that hurts our democracy very, very deeply in ways that are uncomfortable to talk about. So even if you don't talk to this person again for years, leave the door open and you'll never know what comes through. Monica Guzman is Senior Fellow for Public Practice at Braver Angels. She's author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Monica, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for this conversation. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum and Katie Talarski. Our interns are Taylor Doyle and Jacob Gannon. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you have feedback or ideas for the program, just email us at disrupted at ctpublic.org. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>